66 years ago on this day. 155,000 Allied troops crossed the English Channel and landed on the beaches of Normandy, France. In the largest amphibious military operation in history, our forces stormed the German defenses and broke through Hitler's Atlantic Wall. As we know, it took unprecedented courage to land and then to advance across those open beaches and then scale Normandy's heights on which German troops were bunkered and raining down fire. But on D-Day, the Allied forces had it in them. They had it in them. And World War II was eventually won. It takes a very different kind of courage, but great courage nonetheless, for the followers of Jesus Christ to advance His cause and extend the reach of His kingdom in this fallen world. As the soldiers of Christ, our weapons, of course, are not physical, yet we assault a kingdom of darkness facing stiff, supernatural opposition. As our souls are assaulted by the entrenched forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the pressing question becomes, do we have it in us? Will we stand the test? Have you asked yourself that question when you've thought about D-Day? Would I have that in me? To land on a beach and to go across that beach in the face of that fire? Would I have that in me to do that? I think a more pertinent question for us, and I trust you've asked this too, as I have of myself many times, we hear of our brothers and sisters in Christ dying for Jesus. Standing with the capacity to recant, to renounce their faith, or to die for Christ. And today, as I speak, some are dying. They are choosing to lay down their life for Christ. Do you not ask sometimes, would I have that in me? Would that courage and that strength be in me to actually die for Jesus? On a maybe more basic level, we might ask this, do I have it in me to persevere in the faith or will I abandon the faith under pressure? These are not theoretical questions for any of us and they certainly were not for the Apostle Paul or his colleague Timothy. As Paul writes his second letter to Timothy, and I invite you there if you have a Bible with you, Paul is imprisoned for Rome in Rome and he knows that he will be executed soon. He's largely alone, largely abandoned, and he is facing death. His faith in Jesus has put him in a position of extreme vulnerability, and the powers of darkness seem to be winning the day. Timothy is himself in very dire circumstances. We'll talk about this a bit later, but I don't believe this is the imprisonment that we find at the end of Acts, where Paul is receiving people in and out of his in house arrest, but rather a different imprisonment, one that is very different in its outcome as well. Paul knows he's going to die. We need to read that struggle into every line of this great book. This is his swan song as he knows he is about to give his life for Christ. Timothy himself, as I said, is facing dire circumstances in Ephesus as false teaching is gaining even more of a foothold It will eventually crumble the church, whether in 
Timothy's day or not, we don't know. It certainly wasn't ultimately in Timothy's day. Depending on how Christ looked at that church, it was under assault. And added to this struggle for Timothy is the gnawing realization that he may soon be standing for the faith without Paul. Imagine the effect of that. I will not be here long, writes Paul to his colleague in the faith. Yet despite these trials, Paul's death hymn breaks through the fog of persecution and suffering with a ringing word of hope in Christ. And as such, it then offers to us a tremendous word of encouragement as we seek to persevere in the faith to which Paul and Timothy clung. We listen in as Paul writes very personally to Timothy here and talks about faith on the edge. Faith in the face of death. What do they have in them? What do we have in us? The letter starts with a customary greeting. Paul greeting Timothy in verse 1 and 2. The author is seen here in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is Paul has not gotten into this business to make money. He did not join the church in order to pursue his ambition as a public speaker. He was not a Christian merely because he had determined that this was the most logical faith. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Paul was sustained by the realization that his service was God's will. What he was doing was not negotiable. He wasn't going to get out of this deal because it turned out it didn't work out so well. He was doing what God had given him to do and he was in prison for it. He rested in that. And we too must know that at the end of the day, we are Christians because God chose us to be His people and called us to be His witnesses. It's really about God's will, not ultimately about ours. I'm an apostle by the will of God, probably indicating that the letter was meant to be read by more than Timothy, and obviously it was, but establishing His authority here in the church by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Do you have it in you to persevere in the faith? We learn here that the answer is not what is in you innately, but what is in Christ innately. That's really where the answer lies. In Jesus there is life. And what matters then is that you are in Jesus, who has abolished death. He that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you possess this life in Jesus? The truth of the matter is we are born into this world dead in our sins. We are destined then because we break the law of God for divine judgment apart from God's intervention. This is the consistent teaching of God's Word. But God has chosen to intervene, sending Christ to die in the sinner's place and rising from the dead to defeat death. 
We must respond to this message to turn in faith to Christ and what He has done. Turning from our sin and placing our faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. As we do that, we can know there is life in Christ. And when I am in Him, I have that life. That life is mine by faith. Not because I've earned it, but because He chooses to give it in His mercy, by His will. Paul The Apostle writes to Timothy, verse 2, My beloved child. Paul loved Timothy. There was no one on the earth that he trusted more in ministry. Timothy ministered with Paul on his second and third missionary journey. Fill in the blanks there as you think about the uh, record of Acts. He was with Paul on his second and third missionary journey. He's been through thick and thin with Timothy. Timothy with Paul. Timothy served as Paul's delegate at Thessalonica, at Ephesus, at Corinth, serving also with Silas at Berea. He served with Paul at Corinth for over a year and a half. And then if that wasn't enough to be in that difficult church for that long, he served there for a period of time on his own, apart from Paul in Paul's absence during the third missionary journey. Timothy is mentioned and presented in an authoritative position in the books of Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Philemon, and he's mentioned in Hebrews where in 13:23 we learn that he himself was imprisoned for the faith. It is almost certain now that Timothy is serving in Ephesus where false teaching is causing great disruption. This was a man Paul trusted, a man Paul loved. He was his son in the faith. Whether that means that he led him to Christ personally or not, he was a man that was mentoring Timothy. Timothy was a disciple and Timothy had learned the work of God and learned it well. Grace to you, mercy to you, peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This divine supply of grace, mercy, and peace from God was sustaining Paul right now in prison. And it had sustained Timothy. It would have to continue to sustain Timothy in what had become something of a cauldron at Ephesus and what was going to be an intensely difficult situation when Paul was gone. Now, as we listen in to this conversation, as Paul writes to Timothy, there are two aspects of perseverance in Timothy's life that Paul highlights in these next few verses. As we listen in to Paul's counsel, we see then two characteristics of believers who have it in them to persevere to the end. Now the whole book is really dealing in a sense with that issue in the face of suffering. Continuing on in the faith. Being faithful to Christ. But here in these next few verses we see at least two significant characteristics. The first is a sincere faith. A sincere faith is necessary for us to persevere to the end. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy, and I am reminded of your sincere faith. He doesn't really say what he's thankful for in verse 3 until he gets to verse 5 here. Lots of glorious interruptions that we'll chase for a little bit. But the point is, I give thanks that you have a sincere faith. 
I give thanks to the God that I serve in the Hebraic sense of worship, carrying on His religious duties in service of God because He was doing so according to God's will. Notice that although he is on death row in a Roman prison, Paul, verse 3, serves with clear conscience. Soon be executed for his crimes, but he serves with clear conscience. It's a good way to die. And he worships, we notice here as well, the God of his ancestors. I don't think with a clear conscience is referring to them as such. He's saying, I serve God with a clear conscience, but I serve God. I worship the true and living God, as did my ancestors. He connects his life then to those who have gone before. He recognizes here that his new covenant faith in Christ flows out of the old covenant faith of Israel. God's Word in the law and to the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures pointed to Jesus as Messiah. So we find Paul here celebrating his heritage among God's chosen people. He is setting up a comparison with Timothy that we'll get to in a bit. But he pauses first to note this, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. So I have this faith in my ancestry that is part of my heritage as I think about you, I remember your tears. I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He says, first of all, that is, he's intensely concerned for his partner in the gospel who's laboring there in Ephesus and one probably at their last meeting who cried. The tears flowed because Paul was leaving. We don't know when that was precisely, but it was a painful parting. And that only heightens Paul's passion to be reunited with Timothy. So he says, I long to see you. Mounts calls this verse a clear look into a lonely man's heart. I long to be with you, Timothy. We're talking here about two men who have a depth of respect and love for one another that can only be forged on the field of battle and which suffers in those seasons of separation. That was part of the life for the Christian evangelists. They had to keep saying goodbye. They couldn't text. They couldn't use cell phone. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Skype. None of that. You said goodbye, you were saying goodbye. And these painful partings are happening all the time. And so as he lifts his voice in this swan song, his heart yearns for fellowship with his beloved friend. How does that strike you, Timothy crying? This grown man crying that he's being left by another man. Many Christians, many Christian men, let me talk to you particularly, Many Christian men in our culture would never express such longings. They'd never be caught dead crying like that at somebody's departure. Nor would they die for Christ. We have a much tougher exterior and a much weaker constitution. But I think it is true, and not reading too much into the text, that they who have it in them to die for Christ have it in them 
to express tender compassion for other followers of Christ. Here's a man in tears. A man willing to go to prison. And two men who are willing to die for Christ. I long to be with you. Thinking back on the history, let's take just a brief sideline. Remember the three missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Then there is, after two years in prison at Caesarea, that harrowing voyage by sea for Paul as a prisoner of Rome. And after two years of house arrest at Rome, Paul was almost certainly released. I don't think what we read at the end of Acts fits at all what we're seeing here in 2 Timothy. And I don't think that it's merely circumstances that have changed in Rome but that Paul was released from that imprisonment, and there are a number of evidences of that historically we won't go into. But to point to just one, Clement of Rome, who was bishop at Rome just 30 years after Paul, so theoretically having people in the church there who knew Paul or were there when Paul was in Rome, said that Paul reached the limits of the West, which is undoubtedly a reference to Spain. Whether that's true or not, Paul seems to have returned east to Macedonia and ministered on Crete with Titus. He says, I left you there on Crete. And it doesn't fit in anywhere in the book of Acts. But somewhere along the line, though we cannot perfectly reconstruct the history, Paul is likely rearrested, captured, returned to Rome, this time to a dungeon, if we trust historical sources, where he is confident that he will die. Chapter 4. But I'm giving thanks, says Paul. I know I'm going to die here, but I give thanks for this, Timothy. You have genuine faith. I thank God for that. I'm reminded of your genuine faith. The word means unwavering, unhypocritical faith. There is a kind of faith which is inauthentic and eventually crumbles under the pressure. That's the faith of someone such as Demas in chapter 4 and verse 10. He loved the world and so he abandoned the faith. But I am convinced of you, Timothy, that in you dwells a sincere faith. Now, remember Paul talking about his ancestry? Notice what he does now. Verse 5. A faith which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. From all we can determine, his father, an unbelieving man, referred to as a Gentile, as a Greek. But we have reference here to his grandmother and his mother. Both were Jewish women. The evidence from the book of Acts is that they came to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know if Paul or Timothy learned the faith directly from them, was converted through their witness. They were certainly teaching him the Hebrew Scriptures. That's, that's all there was. There's no New Testament at this time. But they're teaching him the Hebrew Scriptures somewhere in the process. Grandma and Mom come to faith in Jesus Christ. They trust the Lord, and that faith in some sense is passed on to Timothy, whether Paul was the one who had part or hand in his conversion or not. Uh, we, we can't ultimately be sure. But from infancy, Timothy had been taught God's Word. And now, 
the genuine faith that dwelt in his grandmother and mother now dwells in him. Do you notice that phrase? It's very vital here, I think. The faith dwells in you as well. So there is life in Christ. There is faith now in you. Such faith is not merely an intellectual assent. It's not merely agreeing with the facts of the Gospel. Such faith takes up residence in our souls. It defines who we are. It becomes the controlling center of our being. As the book of Ephesians puts it, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This faith dwells in Timothy, therefore the life of Jesus dwells in Timothy. He has genuine faith. This faith dwelt first in his mother and grandmother. I wonder, are you a Christian parent here? As we hear that, it certainly raises our interest, doesn't it? And it reminds us that all of our efforts to teach our children the Word of God and the ways of Christ should be poured out in the interest of genuine faith. Our goal is not external obedience. Not ultimately. Our goal is not ultimately outward conformity. Our goal is not to merely bequeath a Christian heritage to our children and see what they do with it. But ultimately, the goal of Christian parenting is to encourage genuine faith. But that leads to the next point. We can't make that happen, can we? Genuine faith is not something that we can generate as parents in our children. It must come to dwell in them. And along these lines, I think we need to be cautious not to press children for what we might refer to as a decision. To make this pointed place and press them beyond where they are ready and what is really in them. I think we need to be cautious not to press them toward baptism before genuine faith can be tested and seen. There's a tendency, perhaps, for every Christian parent to want this to be finalized for their kids. Let's always remember, we can't do that. We don't finalize faith. It comes to dwell in our souls by the work of God, and it comes to dwell in our children by the work of God. We cannot be baptized for them, and we cannot put our faith into their heart what we can do is proclaim the Gospel faithfully and live the Gospel fruitfully. Of course, instructing them that they must respond to Christ crucified and risen to escape their sin. But in that whole process, may we be reminded that what we can do is teach the Scriptures and live the Scriptures and be faithful to live out the life that dwells within us. But let me press this further. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Or are you now growing up in a Christian home? A home where the faith is honored on some level. Not perfectly, but where the Christian faith is expressed and is lived out. I think the temptation for some of us is to say, I wish I didn't grow up in such a home. Or I wish I wasn't in such a home. I see someone who years after they've left their home, comes to faith in Christ and their faith seems so fresh and the experience seems so real. I wish that had happened to me. We need to be careful here. Because I think what's speaking is more Western individualism. An experience 
from our culture is more authentic if it's unique to me. And it's especially authentic if it's different from my parents. I don't think the Bible is impressed with that thinking at all. There is a heritage that we should honor and give God thanks for. Are you growing up in a Christian home? Did you grow up in a Christian home? Give God thanks. Bless His name. God chose to save your parents. God chose to put you in a faithful home. Do not devalue what God has chosen to do. If your parents are raising you in the faith, that's exactly what they should be doing. Rejoice. And when there's that idea, I I kind of wish I had grown up in a non-Christian home, If that person has really come to faith in Christ, it's interesting how every last one of them is very anxious to bring up their children in a Christian home. So give thanks. You see, the faith is a matter of humility. None of us came to it on our own. We didn't invent salvation, and we didn't find salvation by ourselves. Somebody wrote a book Somebody recorded revelatory words. Somebody proclaimed the Gospel. Somewhere, somehow, the faith is passed on to others. Let's rejoice in that. Let's respect it. Let's give God thanks for this heritage. Timothy, remember who you are. Remember what's in you. And remember the roots of what's in you. A second characteristic then, along with genuine faith, real faith, that is there's an inauthentic faith, but the real and genuine faith is matched then in a second characteristic for persevering believers with a thriving spirit. There is a genuine faith and a thriving spirit, verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fan into flame the gift of God. Some time ago, Paul laid his hands on Timothy at what was probably some sort of commissioning ceremony and Timothy received a unique spiritual gift which enabled him in his ministry. Was this the reception of the Holy Spirit? We say no. The Bible seems to indicate very clearly that the Holy Spirit baptizes the believer, indwells the believer at the moment of conversion. It's not what's happening here. This is not an Acts 19 kind of thing. Was this a second work of grace? Subsequent to salvation? The tricky question. Yeah, it is on one level. Timothy knew the Lord when this took place. And it is a work of God's grace upon him. But no, not as a pattern to follow. And there's just a short sideline here that I think is helpful to us as we interpret the Scriptures. When practices in the New Testament are not followed up with instructions in how to do it in the remainder of the Bible, we should not try to fill in the blanks. What happened here with Paul and Timothy is probably unique and we don't need to try to copy it. Let me give a real clear example. The book of Acts speaks over and again of elders in the church at Jerusalem. As we move into the epistles, do the epistles have anything to say about elders in the church? Well, yeah, there's quite a bit of instruction there, isn't there? There's there's even qualifications and there's discussions about what elders or pastors are supposed to do. 
how the shepherding process functions within the church. So that's something that the early church practiced historically. And since there's instruction in the New Testament, we follow that practice. Because we're, we're directed in how to do that. Let me give another example. The casting out of demons in the Gospels and Acts. Well, we know that demons were cast out. We believe that. Because we believe the Bible. But as we move into the epistles, what is the word of instruction that we have about casting out demons? It is simply, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Be aware that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. So it's, it's resist, be aware. It is counter the effects of of the satanic realm with a godly life. That's the only instruction we get. It gets dangerous when we start filling in blanks to be exactly doing exactly what the New Testament church was doing or what was happening in the Gospels. And I think here this is an example. In this apostolic era, there were extraordinary operations of the Spirit, as one has said. But spiritual gifts include all enabling graces the Holy Spirit mediates to His people. That makes sense might be something very unique going on here that we don't copy. Yet, God continues to minister to His people through His Holy Spirit. Let's just run with what the Bible teaches us. And it does teach that. For Timothy, there is reason to believe that he received a gift of teaching and or evangelism he was then to fan this gift into flame to rekindle it afresh. Now, this should not be read as a rebuke or an indication that Timothy was losing his fervor for God. I don't think that's the case. Encouragement does not always presuppose failure. I say that as a father from time to time. Encouragement does not presuppose failure. I don't think Timothy's failed to fan into flame the gift of God. He's just being encouraged to do what he must do, what we all must do. For all of us, the gifts of the Spirit must be constantly stirred up. We must employ means to this end. God has given us all that pertains to life and godliness through His indwelling Spirit, and we need to then be praying, reading God's Word, meditating, seeking counsel, serving God's cause and gathering as a church. That's one reason we gather, to stir up the flame. To enhance the flame, not to stretch the analogy a bit, to add fuel to it. The fuel is all there. All that we have is provided in Christ, but we need to stir it up to keep it alive, to keep those embers hot. This is what Timothy must do if he's going to persevere at Ephesus and continue to preach and teach the truth, and stand against error. We have another in you here, don't we? Verse 6. Life is in Christ. I'm convinced the true faith dwells in you. And now, verse 6, there is the gift of God that is in you as well. In other words, what God commands, He supplies. If God calls us to proclaim His saving grace and commands us to walk in obedience, 
we can be sure that He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. In fact, verse 7, God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. You'll notice if you have the translation that I'm looking at here, the ESV, you, you notice that it's a small s. For God gave us a spirit, small s. In the original text, there's no capital letters there to discern if this is capital S or small s. I think we have the right idea here. And I draw that largely from the idea of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. That would be a non-statement if it was a reference to the Holy Spirit. No kidding. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear. Well, yeah, obviously. But here he's saying God has not given to you a spirit of fear. And in the context that we're dealing with here in the whole book, as well as in the verse to follow, I think the fear is speaking of cowardice, which is what the word can mean. Now let me just pause for a moment here in defense of Timothy. The common notion is that Timothy was weak, he was inexperienced, he was timid, he was retiring. That simply doesn't match the historical record. You know the log that I've just listed here historically about what Timothy did and the situations he was in. That's not the picture of some weakling. This young man led the churches at Corinth and Ephesus in Paul's absence. That's pretty much enough said right there. He remained faithful in ministry for years. He had to stand up to false teachers. He was in prison for the faith. And Paul trusts no one on earth more than Timothy. Well, Paul wasn't always an easy sell on that, was he? Remember Mark? I don't think we should bring him along. I don't know that we can trust that man. Timothy, I trust him explicitly. Paul is preparing Timothy for suffering in Gospel witness. Why does he say, remember Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear because in a manner of speaking, Timothy was going across Normandy's beaches. Paul is soon to die next to him. And he's got to go on and storm the citadel of Satan there at Ephesus. Don't forget... God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timothy was a man, I think, of high courage. But a man who was a sinner. So Paul encourages him, don't give in to that spirit because where God sends His Spirit, it is never the gift of fear. That comes from some other source. But He has given us a spirit of power. How can we persevere in the faith? God supplies His people through His Spirit with moral strength. God has empowered our spirits by His Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He has given us power. He has given us the spirit of love which casts out fear. It does not permit self-centered worry to overwhelm care and responsibility for others. He has given us a spirit of self-control. This quality supplies calm, resolve, and level-headed wisdom when life around starts to unravel. And it's going to unravel. Don't be ashamed, Paul writes in verse 8, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel. 
not a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of self-control. That's what is in you, Timothy. So we ask the question, would I stand in the face of persecution? If someone put the gun to my head and said, renounce Christ, or if someone said, you're going into this horrible pit and you're going to live there until you give up Christianity, would I stand? Would I have it in me to suffer in that way? Let's remember this. If God would ever put us there and the faith dwells in us with sincerity and the Spirit that God has given dwells within us, we would have the strength. We would have the power available. It's no different for us and for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are standing right now in the face of persecution. Because it's not what's in them innately. It's what God has put in them. And what He has put in them, a genuine living faith and a spirit of power and love and self-control that weaves itself together to stand up courageously for the faith, He has put that in you, Christian. And we need to fan it into flame. We need to stir it up because it is there. How often does fear overwhelm us? But it's not because God has left us unsupplied. The assault on Satan's gates will succeed. Those with genuine faith will live to tell about it forever. Fear comes when we look at Satan's kingdom, when we depend upon the flesh, but we have it within us to stir up this love, this power, this self-control, because God has supplied it. What is in you? What is in you today? If you say, I'm completely lacking of such faith, I'm completely lacking of such courage and power, What you need to do is see the cross of Christ and you need to turn from your sin. There's no other answer. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ that is genuine and real. And you need to live a life in which you are willing to suffer for His cause. Not because of what's in you, but because of what He'll put in you. That your life would hinge upon and revolve around your faith in Christ crucified and risen. When that takes place, we can stand. We will stand. And may we join together as a church helping one another continue to fan into flame what God has put in us by His grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the faith in Christ praying in behalf of anyone separated from Jesus and asking that they'd come to that light and to that truth and rejoicing as the people of God in this great heritage of those who have known the faith. Those who have come to embrace genuine faith in Christ. We thank You for that presence and pray that You will continue to nurture it in our souls 
drawing us to the light and granting us that courage to live for your glory and honor this day and this week and as you give us life into the future. We know that we will never rue the day that we trust you. We will always celebrate what we've accomplished because of your power in us. But we thank you to pause here and know that it's because of what is in us. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering right now. And they understand that that's just the deal. As a Christian faith, as genuine believers, we don't fight this world and its persecution with physical weapons. We realize that our calling is to suffer. And as we hold up our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering today in our prayers, I pray that you would fan into flame power, the love, the self-control that will help them to stand and that will permit us to honor them throughout all eternity. But we know that their faith is no different than ours. So they can waver or they can stand. We pray that they'll stand. May your mercies to them be realized in our life as we let no spirit of fear dwell within our souls, but trust in the indwelling Spirit of God that is in us. To this end we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.